the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. Indeed, welcome to 2021. This being the first podcast of the year, I'd like to wish you all a very happy new year, hopefully a less turbulent one. What can I say? We are eternal optimists here at Lloyd's List Towers. For those of you who are regular Lloyd's List podcast listeners, welcome back. Anyone joining us for the first time, what took you so long? We're going to be back into our regular weekly schedule, getting under the skin of the story shaping shipping with expert guests and some of the industry's leading thinkers. And for those of you who are subscribers to Lloyd's List, we will be back with our regular maritime risk briefings and monthly market outlooks shortly. This week, I wanted to start you off with a couple of simple questions to ease you into the year. The first section of the podcast asks, are container lines profiteering? The short answer, of course, is, well, if they are, they're not very good at it, historically speaking. But uh, we follow that with a look at whether we have sufficient clarity over the details of decarbonisation. The answer to this, I'm happy to say, is a slightly more definite yes, now that we have launched the results of our decarbonisation survey. This was, uh, if you remember, a survey we conducted in association with Lloyd's Register at the tail end of last year. I have to say the results are all online at lloydslist.com. Before you hit pause and go and ferret around that digital goldmine, I would urge you to hang around for a quick chat with Lloyd's Register's Charles Haskell and our very own climate change Cassandra Anastasios Adamopoulos. Before we get to them, I have our container kingpins, James Baker and Janet Porter, on the line for you. Recent complaints from shippers in China, Europe and the US have again raised questions over the performance and practice of container lines. It's easy to see why cargo owners' hackles are raised. Freight rates are currently rocketing past $4,000 per TEU territory on the Asia-Europe trades for the first time. And then we have the issue of severe shortages of equipment and delays at ports and inland distribution, all of which are causing additional costs. All of that means that shippers and forwarders are not a happy lot, and with good reason, I would say. But is that just a rare case of the lines finally profiting, or is there any validity to the shippers' cry of profiteering? That's a question I posed to our containers editor, James Baker. Well, let's start with you, James. I mean, are rates a sign that carriers are colluding, abusing their position? Are are containers profiteering in this uh, uh, rarest of rare moments where they're actually making a bit of money? No, I I don't think so. I mean, yeah, it it is a rare moment where they are making money. I mean, arguably, this is the um, first time in about a decade that since the global financial crisis that they've actually been able to merely pay for the cost of their capital, far less the serious going concerns. The rates are, I think, as much, I mean, we're in a, people seem to be tending to forget that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. This is something that's never happened in the history of containerization or in the, you know, since the 1920s, we've never really been through anything, anything like this um, in the history of modern shipping. There's been massive fluxes in demand. There was a, a huge sort of 15% um, collapse in volumes during the second quarter that's now rebounded back in the third quarter of last year um, and and into the fourth quarter. Uh, just that massive disruption in supply and demand, it's a, it's a major shock to, to all the systems down the entire supply chain. And 
Yes, that has ended up, for various reasons, putting a huge amount of pressure on on rates. Um, and we have seen sort of record levels of rates over you know the the past month or so um, leading up towards Christmas. But uh, you know this does have to be taken in the context of the, the the global situation that we're in at the moment. And to be fair, I think you know this is probably likely to run for a few more months, um, possibly to the early summer. But um, at the end of the day, things will clear out again, and there will be a reversion to norm. This is not a you know a permanent new normal for mm. super high rates. I mean, Janet, do you do you can do you agree with that assessment? You've been um, covering this long enough to know that you know this is anomalous. But again, shippers complaining about sky high prices in terms of freight rates is is not a new story for you. No, it's certainly not new. And but I would agree with James. And we have to look at over the last 10 years or so, at least, container shipping has never made good, decent returns. That's one of the reasons why Maersk is doing what it's doing. Maersk line was not profitable on its own or wasn't um, producing the sort of returns it should have been doing. So over, you know, over the decade or probably more, container shipping hasn't been all that profitable. And now they are making some good money. But, you know, I think when you think about how much they have to spend on new ships, it's a very capital intensive industry. And I don't think any of the shippers that are now complaining probably really want to see their cargo going on old fuel inefficient ships. You know, there's a lot of pressure on the lines to get modern tonnage um, to meet all the new environmental re- regulations. So you've got to take that into account. And also, a lot of the shippers, the cargo interests, are not paying these spot rates. They have contracts. Now, I know that um, they've complained that the lines are breaking the terms of some of those contracts. The contracts will, will um, determine, say, volumes and rates in advance. And um, the, the, I gather some of the shippers are saying that those contracts are being breached. But it works both ways. There have been many occasions when the cargo interests have um, allegedly broken contract terms because it was in their interest. And I think another thing they should remember, you I mean, lines need to make decent money. Nobody wants another hand in. Um, that was absolute chaos. And um, I don't think it's unreasonable for them to sort of take advantage of this moment. Now, a lot of the problems we're seeing at the moment are not of their making. I mean, the, the, the ships we're seeing um, at anchor outside LA Long Beach, that's not because the container lines are being inefficient. And, you know, there are problems along the supply chain. So they've been caught up in all sorts of other things over which they've got no control. Um, But, you know, I I agree with James. I think that the industry needs to make some money. It mostly doesn't. It's a very cheap, efficient form of transport. If you looked at the cost of um, stuff we buy in the shop, the percentage of the transport element would be very, very small, I think. Mm -hmm. So overall, I think that they've done an amazing job during a pandemic, both at the beginning and now at the end. They've kept us supplied. I was going to say the shops are full, but not the shops. You know, we can get stuff that we need. It's being shipped around the world um, amazingly efficiently, considering what they've had to contend with. The fact is it's a question of telling the shippers to get back in their box, so to speak, or, uh, you know, will there be a conversation? And do you think the competition lawyers are going to be involved in that conversation? I think the regulators are getting interested at the moment because there is a certain amount of noise from some powerful shipper groups but on on the other hand i don't really think there's a competition issue there this has been addressed you know numerous times and and every time there's been sort of investigation into the lines it's there's nothing there's been proven nothing to 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 show or answer to i mean 
There, there are some genuine shipper concerns. I mean, there is this issue of um, this very well documented uh, problem over the lack of um, containers, which is something that's come out of that that sort of chaos that happened in the supply chain. I mean, you know, simply put, there was, you know, the, all those blankings that took part took place back in the early part of last year has meant that containers are in the wrong place. There's been you know, a lot of carnage, but you know, again, that's being worked to resolve. That's not really. Yeah, yes, shippers have a valid complaint saying they can't get their goods out, but that's not people colluding. That's not being done on purpose. Um, so yeah, mm. whether or not there you know, are issues there, I, I can't see it personally. Yeah, and if I might just add there, I mean, I've, I've contacted a couple of lawyers today. I don't think this has got to the stage, at least in Europe, where lawyers are involved. Um, they may well do, and there may well be cases, but in that there has been over the last, I'm trying to think, 20, 30, 40 years even, uh, a difficult relationship between carriers and, and their customers. Uh, in Europe, of course, it went, it did go to the courts. We had two huge high profile cases, ended up with a conference system being disbanded. But in all that, the lines were never found guilty of any uh, anti-competitive behaviour. And um, I, I, I don't think they would in this case. I think it is difficult. Everybody's struggling. And, you know, when shippers suddenly see the rates shooting up and they can't get their cargo delivered, they take aim at their favourite enemy, which is the carriers. But I, I think that um, I don't think I wouldn't have thought these spot rates we're seeing at the moment would continue all that long. Of course, I could be wrong, but you know, there has been a spike, a, a dramatic spike in recent weeks. And it'll probably be continue up until Chinese New Year, and then we'll just have to see. But if the warehouses, especially in Southern California, when the states are really full, then one would assume the volumes, the volume pressure would have to ease a little bit, and that would, you know, take the pressure off the rates. Mm. One, of the, one thing you've got to remember with the, um, the the same shippers that are clamouring for slots and containers now are, are exactly the same shippers who back in March and even into April were you know, requesting storage and transit um, and trying to not get their boxes delivered and trying to you know, cancel <laughs> orders. Um, and this is, I mean, to be fair, this is one of the issues that is, has happened and, and has made the supply chain more difficult to manage is that, I mean, I was talking to one carrier chief executive said, you know, bookings were varying by 20% each week, you know, and that that's just... Basically, what was happening is you know, everybody sort of piling in with with you know orders, trying to get a slot, and then not not taking them because they got one cheaper somewhere else or got a different one. You know, there's there's a lot of um, you know you can point the finger both ways to a certain degree. So it's you know I think I think it is a little unfair to you know I'm not saying the carriers are blameless by any stretch, but I think it's a little unfair to sort of say that they're as Janice says they can't be responsible for an awful lot of stuff. And when it's you know, when, when cargo owners and shippers want to want to cancel or uh, rebook, then you know they do have that ability, and we're thankful for it at the time. I think another Indeed. thing that's raising is that the container lines have tried to make their industry less commoditized over the years, and they've brought in new services. And as we mentioned earlier, James, I think Daily Maersk was an attempt to provide you know um, guaranteed delivery, guaranteed space paying a little bit more and it was withdrawn in the end and you know, every shipper you ask will probably say they'll pay extra for service quality of service but when it comes to it it's a very price driven industry still and when the rates go low you know they're very happy and because it's spiking at the moment they're they're not so happy but overall I don't really think that I certainly don't think container lines are profiteering 
Mm. They are undoubtedly profiting at the moment, and they will. You know, they need that money to invest in new modern tonnage, but I don't think they're um, exploiting the situation as I think they're being you know, accused of in some quarters. The historical balance sheets of shipping companies would suggest that if they are profiteering, they are particularly bad at it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really, it is market forces. There is you know, a huge demand at the moment. There is a limited number of ships in space. Every ship, it's not like they're you know, restricting the restricting the capacity to, to artificially prop up prices. Extra loaders are going on. There are, you know, every container in the world is being used. And, um, you know, and I mean, this is one thing I would add. It's like, you know, I know both Maersk and Hapag Lloyd and, and I'm sure others as well. Um, I mean, Hapag Lloyd is sort of bringing in an extra 100,000 containers this year to try and um, improve the equipment supply um, issue. Um, Maersk said it was going to be investing more in containers than it would in ships um, in 2021. So, mm. you know, they are working towards resolving the situation to a certain extent. But um, yeah, the idea that it's being somehow, you know, uh, artificially um, creating a shortage is not true as far as I can see. Well, we will no doubt revisit this uh, and probably be at another point in the market where we will be uh, hearing from the lions complaining about the shippers. But uh, (laughs) for now, uh, thank you, James and Janet. And we'll be uh, back to you uh, later in the month. You're welcome. Thank you. Despite decarbonisation dominating industry debate, regulatory and market uncertainties keeping a lid on new building investments and slowing strategic planning, to borrow a favourite phrase from the former Secretary of Defence Donald Rumsfeld, shipping's zero carbon project is still riddled with too many known unknowns. That's why Lloyd's List teamed up with Class Society Lloyd's Register last year to launch a, a regular decarbonisation survey. And I'm delighted to say the results are in. I'm joined this week by our very own climate change consultants of the industry, Anastasios Adamopoulos, and the head of Lloyd's Register's recently launched decarbonisation hub, Charles Haskell. Welcome to the podcast, gents. Hi, Ricky. Hi, Charles. Um, the 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 survey served you know a couple of um, purposes. We 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 felt that while the big themes were being well discussed in the industry, um, some of the detail was lacking, and we certainly didn't know too much about how the industry was thinking versus the sort of public rhetoric that was out there. And I think it's interesting to hear you know back from a sort of confidential survey that really sort of gets to the heart of the sentiment within the industry. Um, I'm going to start with you, Ennis, because you've had a look at the results. Do you want to give us a sort of quick overview in terms of your key takeaways from from this survey? And then I'll come to you, Charles, and uh, get your view in terms of whether this gives us uh, the insight we needed. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Well, for me, I think one of the biggest takeaways from the survey was the, if you would like, um, reaffirming that regulators are massive drivers and just overall factors in this whole discussion. Uh, I mean, uh, as our readers will see when the survey comes out, um, regulatory action, regulatory clarity, uh, regulatory decisions and uniformity, those are all factors that were listed in different ways as being among the most important in motivating actors to decarbonize their operations. So, I think we've heard over the past couple of years a lot about how 
the industry needs more clarity and more action certainty for investors to sort of make big decisions and deploy capital for R&D, for zero emission fuels and everything that can power shipping uh, into this decarbonized future. But I think a survey like this makes makes clear the extent to which something like that is a common feeling rather than you know, an opinion voiced by a strong few. So I think that is one of the biggest takeaways is just the significance mm-hmm. of regulatory action. Uh, I do think another one that we shouldn't overlook is uh, just how much investors and, and financial motives um, are sort of highlighted as well as important factors. And I think while that can be expected, I think it's important to remember when we discuss decarbonization and shipping that companies especially public ones will make decisions based on largely based on what they believe their investor base wants and i think a survey like this uh, and the results that it offers also confirms that sentiment mm. yes i mean one of the purposes of this survey it's while interesting to see this result, and we've tried to sort of ask the respondents to look at where they think they will be by 2030 versus 2050. So we're asking them to look forward and it will be interesting to see how that changes because this will be a regular survey. And to some extent, we're not really gonna see much movement for the first few editions of this survey. But the idea is we will chart how quickly that sentiment turns into you know reality in terms of some of the decisions. Uh, Charles, I mean, you are heading up the recently launched decarbonisation hub for for Lloyd's Register, I mentioned in the introduction. I'm presuming that you are currently receiving quite a few questions similar to the ones we were posing in the uh, survey. Does the results that we're getting here match with some of the conversations you're having with clients now, do you think? Um, Thank you, Richard. Yes, very closely. Um, It's showing a, a a broad mix and a, and a broad range of views, which is um, is good to know and to consolidate those thoughts. Um, and part of the Maritime Decarbonisation Hub is, is trying to provide clarity around some of these questions, um, which is which is good to see because now we can see where we need to focus our efforts because it's a very big subject and a, and a very big challenge mm. to meet the uh, the Paris Agreement. Uh, and, and where shipping is going to play its part in that. Um, and what this allows us to do is to focus our energy where it's needed. Um, and, and that was one of the benefits of this of, of this uh, survey is one to see where we need to focus our efforts now and throughout the time to be able to see if our efforts are um, actually bearing fruit. Mm. Yes. It, it, it's interesting, and I guess we're not really going to see the detail of, of how much of this is sentiment and how much of this is realistically going to be matched with actual investment and real changes in decision. I generally get the impression from some of the more qualitative responses that there is a degree of hesitation in the industry still. Um, you know, I think we we described it in a recent editorial the, the the Goldilocks risk approach: not too soon, not too late. But the uh, the reality is the uh, the industry is sort of in a race to be second in some respects. You know, there's a 
there's a risk in being too fast in making decisions. And obviously, there's a risk in being a laggard. What you really want is to be somewhere nicely in the middle where somebody else expends the effort and uh, risk in, in terms of uh, innovating and, and you take up some of the uh, the benefit. But uh, such has always been the case in the industry, I guess. I mean, are you, are you getting that sort of hesitancy uh, in terms of the conversations you're having, do you think? Um, yes, I mean, we, we've got a bit of a chicken and an egg. Um, that there's ambition in many circles as well, um, but again, it's it's getting the the starter over the line, um, certainly to meet the ambitions um, of the RMO and and to reach the Paris Agreement. Uh, it's going to require an energy transition, and mm. unlike the previous energy transitions, uh, where the the a fuel was available and cheap, and and shipping slowly adopted this. We, we need the mechanisms in place to make that fuel available and, and to make it uh, economically viable for ship owners to take. And, mm. and these are the challenges which we're facing at the moment um, and, and to see how, the, how we're going to create that environment for the, um, for the energy transition to occur. The, um, the the point that Anastasios made there, I mean, investor influence and financial incentives, you know, ranking pretty high in terms of spurring these decarbonisation efforts. Uh, should we expect that to grow over the coming years or do you anticipate that regulation will continue leading in terms of motivation, do you think? I think, I think we'll see a push from, from all directions. Um, the the societal push from um, the investors and, and the charters is, is very welcome. Um, and, and we need to have to drive from all, all the different angles. The, the regulatory push as well is required, um, and, and that was highlighted in the survey very strongly as well. Um, and the regulatory push can certainly push the, the domestic fleet. Now, when we look at the IMO fourth greenhouse gas study, the, that identified that 30% of the emissions is coming from domestic fleets, and that provides a very good opportunity for uh, national governments as well to include shipping in their, um, in their alignment. Uh, and to drive that forward but we need to be careful therefore uh, about that is to make sure that um, we don't focus the national governments don't just focus on localized fleets or where they do is it's going to be scalable so the technologies which they're investing in um, to to bring down uh, carbon dioxide emissions from the local fleet can then be scaled up into the larger fleet because we, we could be in a danger there of um, a technology sort of stopgap where it can only go so far and won't be able to transition into deep sea shipping. Mm. And that's where we need the international agreement um, and to, to move forward. Um, but we, we do need the clarity on that. And what we don't need is for um, different regions to come out with different policies, which we can't replicate uh, moving forward. If, if we do have a regional approach, because an international approach isn't occurring quick enough, then it needs to be um, it, it needs to be replicable. Let, let, let's take the um, the SECA areas. It, you, you could have a SECA area for for your sulfur dioxide emissions, and and that needs to be that that needs to be copied in another area, and and that works, and we've seen that work. What we can't or what the shipping industry can't deal with is another case um, such as the ballast water treatment systems of where t two different um, regulations have come out and it has caused massive disruption in the industry. 
Well, indeed, and that that fragmentation of regional legislation has always been uh, an underlying threat, I guess, to the sort of uh, international process within the IMO. I'll come back to you, Anis. You're our sort of man down on Albert Embankment inside the IMO, albeit virtually over the last year or so. I mean, do you do you foresee uh, that that sort of fragmentation of regulation debate really pushing things this year? That's is that going to be the focus? Do you think in terms of the regulatory debate? I think so too. In terms of the you know the most consequential action that comes out of out of 2021, it looks like it is going to be from uh, the European Union as we have the European Commission coming out with its um, proposal to include shipping in the emissions trading system in June, and we already have a proposal from the European Parliament. So those things are going to come to a head as negotiations with governments and the the commission begin so in that sense that is where the push is going to come from in 2021 the imo is going to have to finalize a short-term measure which uh you know quite frankly for a lot of people is something that just needs to be done with so the discussion can then progress to longer-term measures like you know, market-based measures, fuel levies, bunker levies, etc. Um, I think when we look, you know, assuming that this isn't another completely crazy year, when we look back uh, on 2021, I think it is going to be the year where Europe sort of took the reins in terms of uh, decarbonization regulation, but. I don't think that that is, you know, irreversible by by any means, or that um, the IMO won't be able in the future to, to catch up in a way or or implement its own system that eclipses whatever the EU comes up with. Well, I will urge all our listeners to uh, go and explore the results in full, which will be available on lawyerslist.com uh, as you are listening to this. Uh, but for now, Charles Haskell, Anastasios, and Thank you very much for joining the Lawyers List podcast. 